This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Okay, everyone, here we are in uh, practical spirituality here in the old city of Jerusalem overlooking the Temple Mount here at Asia Torah. Um, welcome. So today's class is, is called Liberals and Evil. And uh, that's just another one of my controversial topics. And, uh, you know, if you don't write something controversial, good luck anyone clicking on it. So, but um, the, today's class is kind of uh, inspired by a book I'm reading right now, which is uh, by Michael Pollan. Michael Pollan's an amazing, uh, incredibly great, you know, food author and scientist. Um, he wrote The Omnivore's Dilemma. Anyone read The Omnivore's Dilemma? You read it? Oh, cool. It's a great read, right? Amazing read. He's the kind of guy who, like, does things. He doesn't just write about them. He goes and does them. So this was about, like, the omnivores dilemma is, like, about how we're omnivores, so we can really eat anything. And so that's, like, that makes a lot of trouble. Meaning if we were, like, koala bears that only ate eucalyptus trees, it'd be a lot of trouble for eucalyptus trees, but it wouldn't be a lot of trouble for everything else. But we can create tremendous amount of trouble when there's 7 billion of us who can eat anything. And uh, so, meaning we'll start burning rainforests just to, like, get more cows grazing land so we can still buy a burger in McDonald's for a buck. You know, it it shouldn't cost a buck. It should be more expensive. But if you can burn down enough trees and create enough grazing land. But meanwhile, the Amazon forest is called the... Can you slide it to one side or the other? The Amazon forest is called the... Called the yeah, there you go. It's called the lungs of the planet. Like that's where so much of our oxygen is coming from on, the, on a global level. That gigantic forest, that jungle, the Amazon jungle, is the lungs of the planet. You can't just start burning it, and you, you know, just so you can sell a burger for a buck, you know, because uh, it, it creates huge environmental impact that will probably not know, you know, really the true effects of, and maybe our children will, and the. Anyway, so he's, he's a great author. And he went and bought, I think, didn't he buy a cow or something? Like, he, he like, got involved. Like, yeah, I remember he, like, bought a cow or something. I think he slaughtered it or something. I don't know. Like, he's the kind of guy who does things. Anyway, so his latest book is a bit of a shift where he's, is, it's called, have you seen his new book? It's called uh, How to Change Your Mind. And it's, uh, what's happened is the, the, um, the science, which uh, in, in the 1960s, the, uh, psychedelic drugs, LSD, magic mushrooms, and various other um, substances um, were considered in the 1950s and 60s to be the miracle drugs, promise, the most promising drugs that had ever hit the planet for mental illness. Um, the, the drugs that the governments made illegal were the most promising drugs for everything from depression, anxiety, OCD, uh, uh, you, you, you name it. Like this, this stuff was... Um, schizophrenia, like they, they, the studies they had done, and these are these are maladies, these are mental disorders that are that are of of epidemic proportions today, and people are on on drugs that actually were discovered because of LSD. Meaning, a, a scientist named Albert Hoffman in uh, Sandoz um, Laboratories in Switzerland who discovered LSD. It was through his work with LSD that he was able to discover. The um, things that affect serotonin, which is the what are what are the, called the SSRI drugs that people take for depression and stuff like that. Now these drugs are extremely dangerous and extremely ineffective, as we all know. Anyone you know taking antidepressants is one of the most depressed people you ever met. Mm-hmm. 
and 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 they have to keep taking, keep taking, and if they stop taking it, they can go really wacko. So many of them have to take it forever. So they're taking something that's relatively ineffective, and they're stuck on it forever because of the haywire, uh, the haywire effects of someone go, going off of such things. Meanwhile, in those laboratories, they were having tremendous uh, success in treating some of the most serious maladies that were facing the human psychology. And, uh, but it was just terrible timing, and, and there, was a, there was a scientist in Harvard named Timothy Leary who, who made it his, like, his job was to like popularize it, and he put it like literally on the streets of the world. And now you have the most promising miracle drugs for, you know, that, are, that were natural. You know, these are just compounds, you know, chemical compounds that, were, that are found in, in like mold on the grains called rye, which is the, which is a, that mold is called ergot, which is how he discovered it. Um, it's something very interesting to note, by the way, just a wild thing, is that the ergot, which is the, the, the mold on rye that created LSD ultimately, which was this most promising discovery, ergot is, uh, with that, oh, in Israel, we have tells everywhere. Tells are, are layered areas of ruins where you can literally read the history of the world through these layers. And uh, one of those layers... Um, so they, they find tells that are... Some are pure Jewish, some are... Some are pure Jewish, some are mixtures of Jews and layers of idolatrous, you know, Canaanites, and, you know, they're layered. And you can read a lot. You can learn a lot of history through tells. But once in a while, we find a pure Jewish tell. So recently, this year, they found a pure Jewish tell somewhere near Beit Shemesh, which uh, only had Jewish people living there throughout history. I guess the Canaanites avoided that place. And how do we know that? Is because it's got all the ruins of a civilization, but zero idolatry. So if you have no idolatry in an area, you know it, that's a Jewish place because that was kind of our trademark was no idols. And the uh, not that Jews didn't have issues with idolaters. We had plenty of issues with idolaters throughout the ages, but but we weren't like idolatrous, meaning we might have had, you know, maybe a little something here and there, you know, we did a little sneak peek here and there to something idolatrous, but but that wasn't our thing. Our thing was no idolatry. Anyway, they found a tell, a Jewish tell, with zero idolaters, meaning there was never idolaters living in that area. And here's the amazing thing is they found ergot in containers. They found ergot. Now that's a very strange find to find ergot, and they, and they, uh, and anywhere that ergot was used, it was generally as a psychedelic. And so, it's just interesting to note that they found a completely Jewish tell with containers with as with the psychedelic ergot in it, which is really the the ingredients to one of the most powerful psychedelic compounds ever discovered. Uh, so back to the science is that here they were doing all this all this work, um, whether it was Europe or the U.S. Um, they were doing a lot of uh, of research on this stuff, and they eventually, um, it, because of Timothy Leary, kind of turning it into this, it became this part of the counterculture anti-war movement drug, and and it was particularly dangerous. Do you mind putting the fan on is a, uh, the upper panel and the bottom right button? Yeah, right there. Put it on medium. Thank you. Excellent. Yeah, that's it. You got it. So what happened was they, 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 um, 
they uh, where, where am I at right now? I'm, I'm a little sleep deprived. I was up really late last night. I, t- I taught ten hours last night. I taught uh, two hours an age, and then six and a half hours. I had a, a women's group, and then uh, and then I taught two two hour webinars. So so it came out to ten and a half hours of teaching. I was I fell asleep at four a.m. Yeah. There we go. I know we're talking about Erga. Oh yeah, yeah. Is because now, now once it hit the streets and there's a Vietnam War going on, and the U.S. needs kids going into the army, you know, like it was draft time, and it was just really bad news because the effect of that particular drug and the reason why it's so mated well with the countercultural movement is it creates a it is a boundary dissolver. It dissolves boundaries. And that's why it was so good for, for therapy, because you could take a warring family and, and put them on a psychedelic drug, and they're all hugging and crying an hour later. So, like, well, that, that's pretty effective. You know, like, it, it takes away all the politics out of a family, like, instantaneously. And now they're hugging and crying, and you only did that once with them, and you come back three years later to check in as the psychologist to see how they're doing, and they're doing great ever since. Like, it was, it was a one-time thing. I mean, compare that to, to some lithium-based serotonin, you know, uh, you know, medication that's every day and doesn't seem to make a difference, really, in any serious way. So, they, so we're talking about powerful compounds that require no more than one dose with almost a zero toxicity, if not a zero toxicity to the actual human body. No toxicity. So... So it's like, it's, that's the miracle. It's like, it, and it doesn't even have any harmful effects whatsoever, not on brain cells and not on, not on the body. And there's no toxicity involved in the, in the, unlike, you know, opiates, which the U.S., you know, has been pushing on people, for, you know, the laboratories and the big pharma have been pushing on people till now we have an epidemic drug crisis with people dying from the toxicity of these opiates, which are considered completely legal, and like you know, like you know, prescribed all the time, and have people taking them for well, maybe at first it was physical pain, but eventually it was for emotional pain, and so people are—it's an epidemic, you know, disaster. And so they made the miracle drug illegal, and they but they meanwhile pushed either drugs that are not very effective, or they pushed drugs that have caused you know a, a, you know a toxic death that's gripped Western society today. And so what happened was because of the, the dissolving of boundaries that come from um, these, these compounds, it dissolves boundaries. And that dissolving of boundaries means that it, it's really hard to take up a gun and go kill a bunch of Southeast Asians thousands of miles away from U.S. soil. And, like, what do we have to do with them? We love, we love Vietnamese people, you know? And communism's a pretty darn good idea, you know? Maybe it's not, maybe in, an ex, in, an, in its extreme, it not, might not be great, or maybe in large populations, like the 11 time zones of the USSR. Maybe that's a little too big a reach for but kibbutzes seem to work pretty well. And you'll notice that the people on 
who were in the counterculture movement became naturally barters. Like they weren't so into money, they were into trade. Like how can I trade something? I got, how can I get some of your orange juice for a back rub? You know, so I'm like, I'm working on his shoulders and he's squeezing orange juice, which works out great because that can cause quite a, something in the shoulders. So like, I'll work on your shoulders, you work on the orange juice, everybody's happy. And hence leading to ultimately to countercultural events like Burning Man, which took place, I think it just ended, I think it just ended last week maybe or this week, a couple of days ago, couple of days ago which is 70,000 people in the desert outside Las Vegas, but like really in the desert, in like a big dust bowl. And you're not allowed to use money there. There's no exchange of money. That's the rule. You know, you, you spend, I don't know how long, a week maybe in the desert with a bunch of naked people and, and everything is bartered, you know. Oh, no, I'm sorry. They're, they're more extreme. This is 70,000 people. There's no bartering. You can't even barter. It's only gifts. It's only gifts. And everybody comes in bearing gifts. Everyone has to bear gifts. You don't have to. You can just come and freeload. <laughs> but, uh, but most people are, you know, they're in the cause. So they bring something. And so everyone's bringing something. Artists are bringing art projects. Uh, you know, everyone, everyone brings something to it. It's a complete gift system. And it's totally border boundary erasing. It's total boundary erasing. This is not a place that I go. Because I am extremely into boundaries. I'm extremely into borders. But to the extreme, to the extreme, I'm, I'm very boundary-oriented when it comes to diet, extremely boundary-oriented when it comes to Shabbat, I'm extremely boundary-oriented when it comes to, to, my, um, to what I would watch, look at. I'm extremely boundary-oriented in things I would discuss, language I would use. I'm extremely boundary-oriented when it comes to males and females. I'm extremely boundary-oriented when it comes to Jews and Gentiles in certain applications. Usually I'm extremely universal with my background, but, um, but I'm extremely boundary-oriented with certain things when it comes to Jews and Gentiles. And, and you know, I'm an extremely boundary-oriented person because, because of the Torah, which is extremely boundary-oriented. It's like, it's really drawn a line in the sand on a million subjects. I mean, you, you name the subject, it, it's got a line there. You know, and it, it does not stop. It's got a ton of boundaries, which again brings us to the always back to that original question. Is, is it true? Because <laughs> if it ain't true, I'm going with the universal background I grew up with. You know, where all is one and one is all. You know, which is very interesting because that's Shema. Which is, that's our, that is our hallmark. That is our, our call. Our ultimate calling is all is one and one is all. And then a million boundaries, like make up your mind. Are you liberal or are you conservative? And the answer is in Judaism is, is, well, I'm both. All is one and one is all. I treat every person as a person with a soul. Jew, Gentile, black man, white, doesn't matter who they are, I'm colorblind. But when it comes to something that the Torah says I must apply, for example, um, raw meat, needs to be double sealed if it's being provided by you know my friend Cliff Stone and and if and if Cliff wants to pour wine it has to have been boiled first meaning pasteurized otherwise I'm not drinking it and I don't care if I just spent 600 shekels on the bottle now 
Chris and I were brothers forever. My, one of my friends I grew up with. We're friends forever. We are, we are, you know, what is it called? Best friends, BF forever. BFFs. We're BFFs. And my friend Darren Doss, who lives in, in uh, Washington, in Oregon. Washington. But he has a house <laughs> over the Columbia River. I forgot that's September. That's when we all meet. I haven't told my wife that. So, anyway, but, you know, he's a classic Gentile guy, but we are best friends forever. We're sworn in blood forever together. But there, and he's just the coolest, amazing guy you ever met. But we are, we're connected forever, but there's boundaries because Iftor is the real deal. So then all is one and one is all. And there's boundaries. And that's okay. You can have both. You can surely have both. I have, uh, you know, a lot of Gentiles watch this. And hello to Turkey and hello to China and hello to New Zealand and all these other places where people watch my, my stuff. And the, But what happens at the very beginning, they're like, where do I convert? Like, I always get where do I convert on my WhatsApps from them. Like, they, they want to know where to convert to Judaism. I'm like don't need to convert just because this is mind-blowing material it doesn't mean conversion yeah you're born jewish so you should probably be aligning with these you know these standards these borders these distinctions let's call them but i think distinction is probably the best word for torah is it's distinguishing things and we are happy about that you know we like distinctions you know, the, uh, like the, for example, a part of the beach that's distinguished for undertoes, we'd, we'd be happy if lifeguards would mark that spot for us. Like, that's a good distinction. We don't want to just call it beach, because just calling a beach could be extremely life-threatening. We'd we like there to be an areas of a beach that, that have distinctions to them. Distinctions are wonderful. Like, for example, the distinction between acceptance and approval. Like, we like that distinction. That's a good one. You know, like, to distinguish acceptance from approval, that's a good distinction. You know, we all have standards of approval. But we, but we also each have an essence of who we are. And too often people are blurring these things, especially people in the Torah community. People in the Torah community who have higher standards than people raised observant, people living an observant life, huge standards. In every way, what you talk about, how you look, what, I mean, who you interact with, like what, you're call, what you would call entertainment, nothing. Um, the, <laughs> you know, the, the standards of approval are like extru- the highest on the planet. But if you wind up blurring that with acceptance, that means that you, that you accept nobody because they don't hit your standards. And so you wind up accepting nobody. So then you, you're, you're, just, you're just living in a padded cell. You don't live in the world of human beings. You don't live in God's world. You live in some cocoon that you've created in your, in your you know, snobby, you know, holier-than-thou Jewish little... Uh, cocoon you live in. Again, it's like a, a very isolationist thing. It's very exclusive. 
I know some people think the word exclusive is good news, but exclusive means excluding. It comes from the words exclude. You exclude others from your reality. You're basically a terrorist. You're basically a terrorist. Like Jew, like the, the black hat Jewish world that loves to blur acceptance and approval and only accept those they approve of are terrorists, basically. What do I mean by terrorists? I don't mean literally terrorists, but they're like terrorists. Why? Because how can some Iranian guy get on a bus in Iran and blow up... Iran is uh, Shiites or Sunnis? Sunnis, right? No one knows. I think they're Sunni. So how can a Shiite guy hanging around Iran get on a bus and blow up a bunch of men, women, and children who are Shiite, who are Sunnis unless he somehow had, well, I don't approve of, I don't approve of Sunnis. Okay, fine. You don't have to. You have a standard of Shiite all the power to you. You know, it's a free world. But what happens is not only does he not approve of Sunnis, he also doesn't what? He doesn't accept them as, in their essence of who they are. And therefore, he can get on that bus and destroy all of them. Now, I'm not saying any black hat Jew is going to go, well, maybe a few factions, but they're not going to go blow up a bunch of people, but they're, um, but they're blowing them up in their hearts. Now, imagine growing up in such a home. Imagine growing up in that home. Now, you would think, well, it can't be that bad. You're in, right? You're in the home. You're one of the children of the home of the parents who would blow up you know, the school next door. So you're, you're, you should be in good shape if you're in that home, right? Wrong. You're not in good shape at all. Because what that means is that, that acceptance is completely conditional on approval. Which means you're not loved. It might be what you did was loved. It might be that you, that you prayed all day it was loved. Or it might be that you were a good girl in school or a good, you know, a good angle in Heider. You know, you, that's what's love, not you. Well, can you think of anything more painful than the one place in the world where love should have been, you know, your, your, your birthright, which is your own home. I understand how out there we can't expect everyone to love you. But at least your own home. Like, at least your own home you should be loved. That's not your birthright, to be loved no matter what for who you are, just as you were as a toddler. Is that not your birthright? That's your birthright. Because otherwise you would never be normal. You can't be normal if you're not loved for who you are, at least for the foundational years of your life. If you're not loved for who you are, regardless of behavior. Sorry, regardless of behavior. So, so then you, you have nowhere safe. The only place you'll find safe is the streets. Well, tell me, in the end, are the streets safe? They're not safe. They look safe. They look like they accept everybody. They look, you know, very, very approving, that's for sure. Extremely approving, extremely accepting, except in the end, you, they're not really going to be much of a safety net for you. And in the end, people get chewed out and spit out by the streets. Streets is not the place to go. And by the way, when they come back, they're like, well, I need my family. They come back to their family after having been on the streets. Forget about it. Because now they're a virus about to poison the family. And so now they're really out. Now, I'll, I'll let you know that I've had a lot of people cry on my so shoulder over this particular subject. And when I say cry on my shoulder, I'm talking about every layer. And I wear a lot of layers, okay? So, I mean, and I've been wearing my coat when I had this. You know, I'm not going to say, do you mind if I take off a couple layers before you start crying all over me? You know, so we're talking my suit, my vest, my shirt my sitsis and my undershirt and my, my shoulders sopping wet and it's now dripping down 
from saliva, whatever you call that stuff. Is there a nice name for that? And uh, tears. Now, I got a question for you. Who's cried more? The people who left the house or the people who stayed? The good boy or girl. Who's cried more? The good one. Because at least the one who left found some, someone out there. Like the one who left found some sense. They got some help somewhere. Whereas the one who was called the good one just suffered this entire time. And so, in the end, just lacking that distinction can be poisonous. And the funny thing is, is these are, I just described poems where distinctions are them. Like, they're distinguishing everything. Is it kosher? Is it not kosher? Is it, is it you know, is it uh, okay or not? Is this okay or is this not okay? Is this holy or is this mundane? Or even profane? Like, they're, they're the ultimate distinguishers, yet missing the basics of, you know, that acceptance is one thing, approval is the other. And now let's go to the liberal left. Liberal left is, falls under the same problem. What's up with the liberal left? What's number one? What's king? What gets the crown? Acceptance. I'm okay, you're okay. Yeah, it's, they're, they're amazing at acceptance. Ultimate universalism. Like we're all the same. We're all one. And that we accept absolutely everybody. Well, what happens when you accept what happens when your acceptance gets blurred with approval? What happens then? Not only do you have to accept everybody, you have to what? Approve, and there's no more standards. There's no more standards. In fact, having standards, having borders, having, having a, a distinctions, will, they'll go so far as to calling it really evil. Which now things are getting really weird. But that's the way it is. That's the way it is. When you get acceptance to a high enough level, well, acceptance leads to a breakdown of, uh, if, you dis- if you blur it with approval, well, you get a breakdown on what's considered kosher or non-kosher behavior. Mm-hmm. Kosher, non-kosher living. Uh, all distinctions that are in our Torah become politically incorrect. So the actual Torah of Sinai, the Torah of Moses, the Torah of Israel, is a, to them is a reputable document. It is a document that breeds hatred and, and hierarchy and chosenness and, and uh, everything bad. In the name of something that is probably of the most beautiful things in the world, and that is acceptance. And what's, is there a person in this room who doesn't love it? I mean, who do you love? Who do you love? Who do you love? You love people accept you. It brings you to love. Everyone you love is someone who accepts you. And guess what? We can go the other way, right? In, in Gemara, we always throw our thumbs around. You know? Who do you love? Whoever accepts you. This is probably why the, one of the reasons why a lot of people like me as a rabbi is because they just know I, I don't care what you ate yesterday. You know, I don't care where you were last Shabbos. I just don't care. I'm, I accept you right here, right now, exactly where you are. You're accepted by me. And I let my kids know that the same exact thing because I want them to have a safe place. Or as they call it, a safe space. <laughs> <laughs> 
my home. My home is a safe space for growing up. And I do all the damage control when they get home from the systems, from the schools they're in, which I call the system. When they get home from the system, I do all the damage control and make sure they know they're, they're loved no matter what. And so, so who do we love? We love the people who accept us. Who do we hate? Who are your enemies? Who are your enemies? Yeah, anyone who doesn't accept you. And then you might be saying, what? I've got a long list of reasons why I hate that person. Okay, so then I'll ask you which came first. The fact that you felt maybe unaccepted by them, and then you wrote your long list? And the answer is yes. Because had they accepted me and given me that oxygen and fanned the flames of my own spirit inside my heart and let me feel safe with whatever I might do, then I'm okay no matter what. So I may have issues with those people and I might have a list, but it's not going to be that long. The reason my list is so long is because I have to constantly reiterate to myself why that person's a jerk. Because deep down I realize my real issue with them is that I wasn't accepted. Or it may be someone I don't know. <laughs> I know people with a long list of reasons why they hate this community or hate Orthodox Jews or hate this or hate that. They, their long list is really because they feel rejected by this blurring of, dis- blurring of two very important things, but blurred. And all of us know that anyone who you, anyone who you hate, who deep down now you realize it's really because you don't, they didn't, ex- you didn't think they'd accept you, or they said something that made you feel they don't accept you. That if you found out later they accept you, like you found out later, like that person really thinks you're special and really great and essentially good. So what would you do with your long list of reasons why you don't like that person? <laughs> you just, that's gone. And it doesn't matter how long you've been developing a list. It could have been a twenty-year-old list. You're just like, oh, okay, bye. Because deep down the issue is that all we really want to do is be accepted. And, and another interesting factor, just for anyone who ever wants to be an educator, is this is super essential. Because there's two things you cannot do without distinguishing things. One is raise children. You can't raise healthy children unless you have these distinguished. And two is you cannot educate a human being without first establishing implicit implied acceptance. Like it's implicit that I accept you. And once people sense that vibration, because it's vibration, you don't have to tell. If I told you, oh, by the way, I accept you, you'd be like, okay, I wonder what that's supposed to mean. It has to be implied. It has to be a vi- on a vibrational level that you get that you're safe with this person. And when you're safe with that person, you can now, you can now be educated by them. And when you can vibrationally establish acceptance, you can now educate. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah, I have a question. What about, is there any place for hating someone because they rejected someone else, someone you love, let's say? Is that ever say really it again, I'm sorry. Are you allowed to hate someone or just this not hate so much, but um, if they rejected someone else that you love? <laughs> no, you're not. You're not. Um, now, just telling someone they're not allowed to hate someone's like, kind of doesn't make a lot of sense because they're they're going to hate them anyway. Um, but yeah, they have to work on themselves. What about abandonment? Is that the same thing as rejection? Vitamins? Abandonment. Is that the same thing as rejection? Yeah. Yes. What What's your name, by the way? Josh. Hi, Josh. <clears throat> nice to meet you. Um, what do you think of the idea that hate can be something that obviously is somewhat natural but can be controlled with 
meditation, you know, and hate's a pretty strong negative emotion. You can strongly dislike someone, but you went out of your way to use the word hate. And like, is that something we always have to carry with us? Is that something you think is natural that the universe or God, whatever? Hey, um, no, hate's always going to be a petty, childlike part of adult adulthood, and uh, and there's ways to work on hate and to get through it. You mentioned meditation; that's pretty good. But there's a lot of others, um, like for example, um, giving someone that you hate. Um, you become their sponsor. You give to people you hate. You help them. You do stuff. That's why the word forgiving means for for giving. You understand? Like people you hate, you're not going to be giving them. Like that's the person you would not give to, but you can actually trick it by giving them, and and then uh, and then after a while you become like a sponsor. You want to see them succeed. You get that? I've noticed that uh, that one of the tricks for someone. Think about it, if you're in business and you have a and you have a a competitor, who you know, like your colleagues, but like your competitors. So you're fighting after the same fish. You know, you're you're fishing the same fish, and that's a competitor of yours. But meanwhile, you want more business than he does because it's more fish for you. On the other hand, you eat your heart out all, all. You don't have any quality of life because you just can't get them out of your mind. You're always thinking about your competition. So what pleasure do you get out of getting more fish? In the end, you're, you're never at peace. So you know what you do with that guy? You, uh, you undermine your own business and you help him. You help him. You actually find him fish and you help him and you help him and you help him. And even though it kind of hurts you financially... The, uh, it, it brings you peace of mind. And then God has this whole other thing, which is God loves people who live in abundance. That's a very abundant way of looking at things to help your competitor. So God loves abundance. And he, God's the king of abundance. He's the master of it. He's, he's the Baal HaShefa. You know, he, he's got the abundance. So if you are abundant with your enemy... And they, so then God will just make sure you get, like, everyone's going to eat well in that kind of scenario. So be, be abundant with people, with competitors. And um, uh, was, there's a funny, there's an old Sadiq in Jerusalem from, uh, like, the old, you know, hundreds of years old families of Jerusalem. He was uh, someone I was in a relationship with, actually. His name was Rob Zalman Briesel. And uh, he owned the Breezel Bakery on Mayasharim Street. And what happened was, um, and I, I sit next to his son, Barish, who is now Zalman's age. You know, he's, he's now the white-bearded man in our shul, uh, Barish. So Barish told a story that, um, that once, you know, everyone would come get their challahs at the Breezel Bakery. Like, that was the place to get challahs in Mayasharim. So someone said, a, a guy said, hey, you know, so many people are coming for challahs there, I'm going to set up right across the street a bakery. And, you know, I'll, I'll at least siphon off some of the customers towards my challahs, and I'll under, undercut them a little bit, finance, you know, in the price. Anyway, the guy wasn't doing very well at all. Like, people were pretty loyal to Breezel Bakery, and they weren't doing, he wasn't doing so hot. So anyway... I mean, he was going to have to go out of business. So what happened was one day, Rav Zalman was on his way into work to the break bakery. And it was Friday morning. And he says to the guy, his competitor who set up shop across the street, he said to him, I just think you'll do better if you put your challahs on my side of the street. So please just set up a stand over here right next to my door and sell the challahs from, from over here. You know, and then you're, you're more visible and people will see you as just better. So, so he, so he did, 
And anyway, Barish comes in. It's his father's story. He, Barish has been very upset about this competitor who was set up across the street that was not cool. You know, and, and Barish comes in and sees the guy. He almost throws his stand up upside down. And, he's, and he yells at the guy, like, how dare you set up shop right by this door of my father's bakery. And the guy says, what do you want me to do? Your father told me to set it up. And so he goes into his father, and he says to his father, who's like getting the next batch of chalas ready, and he says, he says, What's, what'd you do telling our competitor? To? And, and Reb Zalman looked at his son Barish, and he said, he said, I, I just thought he'd sell more chalas. That was his answer, that he would sell more chalas. Now, that's a real all is one and one is all way of looking at people. That is all in the head. Okay, now, believe it or not, wait till you hear what I'm about to say. Ready for this? Shalom Aleichem. Ready for this? Close the door. Here we go. The Vietnam War is going on. There's a draft to go kill Asians in uh, Vietnam based on communism possibly taking over the country of Vietnam as if that really matters to anybody. And what happened was the kids who are draft age are on a, a chemical compound that completely disappears distinctions. And like, there's no such thing as distinctions. They love Vietnamese people all of a sudden. Like, no one ever had such a love of Vietnamese people until, you know, LSD hit the, hit the streets. And then, and not only do they love them, communism's a pretty nice idea in a limited form. You know, that's a equality of wealth. Not such a bad plan. You know, why not? Everyone should have some. You know, let the government provide everybody some, some. Uh, you know, it just what's it do? It wipes out poverty. It's supposed to anyway. It's supposed to wipe out poverty. If you go to a lot of kibbutzes here, there's no one poor on the kibbutz. Everyone's equal on the kibbutz. So it's not such a bad idea. Meanwhile, you get a draft notice saying you've been drafted to go kill a bunch of Vietnamese people in their jungles. You know what? I'm not killing these people. And, and hence they wound up in a situation. Is it four? Sorry. Whoa, it's four, seven. Four, six. They, they, they wound up in a situation where people started burning their draft cards and stuff, burning their, burning their, their uh, you know, they were literally making bonfires and people were coming and burning their draft cards. President Nixon was the president at the time and what they did was and they, I think I think this is true, although I don't know for a fact. But the but major, um, I don't know if this is true, but the but the big pharma pharmacology companies came and said like, like we've got a problem on our hands, and one of the problems is this this miracle drug that, that in the laboratories they had found a cure for some of the biggest uh, mental maladies. Has um, we need you to make it illegal. And the next thing you know, a non-addictive, non-toxic drug that was most promising for actually curing addiction, alcoholism, nicotine, it's, it's probably one of its number one usages, um, is curing addiction. So anyway, 
they made him sign it to get the classification of drugs as dangerous as heroin with high toxicity and extreme addictive uh, addictive uh, you know power what yes thank you you're just helping me so the um, anyway so next thing you know it's illegal and then all the research goes underground but once you know once the cat was out of the bag the cat was out of the bag and and what happened is that it created the academic media and left-wing politics because the conservatives were like no you know that's a no-no you don't do that stuff while the liberal was like yes you know and and they ultimately became academia the media the um, obviously the left-wing government and hence comes identity politics and the blurring of gender blurring of gender lines which is where we've come to today and and the ult- and ultimately that there's no such thing as evil evil is a just a social socially evolved thing that can be cured and you know it's just not there's no such thing as evil in people that we're all good you know open up the jails you know let them all out certainly Amalek who has attacked the Jews attacked the Jews in many genocidal attempts at least two big ones we know about there's no such thing as evil and as I'm reading Michael Pollan's book uh, which is an amazing expose on what happened in the late 90s is and especially starting 2006 I think is that the research for these miracle compounds was reinstated. The FDA of America said, okay, we're back. You can do it again. And so they're, so now they're in heavy-duty research right now. And completely legal university research. John Hopkins in Baltimore, uh, UCLA, uh, universities in, in, in uh, Europe, England. And they, uh, so they're back. They're back doing all the research. So in this book, one of the, one of the people that was a subject who got to have this psychedelic experience says that she realized there was no evil and in her in her hallucinations she got the opportunity to hug Hitler she got to hug Hitler and it was a, just one of the most beautiful experiences of her life to like realize there's no such thing as evil liberals hugging Hitler on psychedelic drugs. No distinctions. What is the ultimate distinction? The ultimate distinction came in a plant in the Garden of Eden. The distinction between good and evil. And now we have other plants today that erase good and evil. Except, well, that could be very convenient for people who are the embodiment of evil. Let's let the most powerful countries in the world, i.e. the West, let's let them get so liberal that they stop recognizing that there's such a thing as evil. Well, that's a great way for evil to proliferate. And so in the end, it winds up with an absolute lack of distinction, even though, as I have demonstrated in the class, 
not just with this, but with other subjects, that distinctions are good, especially when they're divine. A divinely ins- divine distinctions as in our Torah and our laws. That's ex- very important distinctions. That Show me any liberal who, you know, secular liberal, who because I am very liberal in my views. I'm extreme universal, all is one and one is all person. But Torah is binding. Torah is a divine prophetic document. And those distinctions are my distinctions. And I don't have many others. You know, if, it's, if Torah didn't say anything about it, it's one to me. If Torah does say something about it, okay, it's two, three, four, whatever the distinctions are. But I'm like, I'm one of these like extreme liberal universalists who are like, but when it comes to Torah, I'm just as extreme about its distinctions. So like, if Torah distinguishes it, I'm like 100% on that distinction. If Torah doesn't distinguish it, I am 100% on the, if, if it comes to me as all is one, and one is all. Then I'm in all is one and all is all. Oh, Torah distinguishes it? Okay, man. So then that's a distinction. Now the Haredi movement kind of can over-distinguish sometimes with customs and, and new uh, rules and fences. Like, And you know what? I, I certainly am I'm part of the club. Certainly part of the club, but it's very important to remember that's not one of the laws. It's not in Shulchan Aruch because you don't want to you don't want to stop distinguishing that because if a you know that's too much. If a girl, can you go back to low, please. I'm, I'm gonna finish up. If a girl at the hotel is not wearing enough clothing, well, and and she really, really deeply and badly needs Torah. So I could easily overlook her and just walk the other way because, you know, how there's, a, there's, it's, it's better not to even look, says our, the customs of my Haredi Hasidic community. And so just let her go to the spiritual gas chamber. On the other hand, I could say, well, wait a second. It's how you look. Because the Torah does prohibit lustful looking. It does prohibit lustful looking. But does that mean to overlook someone who could be my daughter who's on her way to destruction? And the answer is obviously no. So I have to distinguish that. Anyway, that was a lot of food for thought for everybody. Um, I suggest you all chew on it. Shalom. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.